there's so much power when you harness it. I mean, when, you know, with, with healthy families, which most families with addiction are totally healthy and loving, and uh, when you can make use of that and, you know, have meetings to break the ice and talk about what it's going to be like when the person comes home again, it just makes so much sense. Welcome to Health Professionals in Recovery, a podcast for healthcare practitioners interested in substance use disorder, harm reduction, and recovery from addiction. Our hope is to provide education and support for those struggling in silence, recovering, and those who care for patients who suffer with substance use disorder. For more resources, please visit our website at www.healthprosinrecovery.com or follow us on Twitter at HPIR Podcast. And now, the hosts of Health Professionals in Recovery, Sean Fogler and Bill Kinkle. Welcome to Health Professionals in Recovery. I'm Sean Fogler. And I'm Bill Kinkle. And today we have a very special guest, uh, Patrick Doyle. Uh, Patrick is a life coach and advisor who helps people with problems, decisions, and goal attainment in daily life. Uh, his family coaching is highly focused on you helping your loved one, your family, and yourself. Uh, Patrick Doyle has been working with both families and individuals suffering from substance use disorders, depression, and other behavioral health issues for 30 years. He earned a master's in social work in 1986 from Boston College and is a licensed independent clinical social worker in Massachusetts. Patrick follows the NASW Code of Ethics Patrick is a qualified substance abuse professional, according to USDOT regulations. In addition to working as a senior clinician at employee assistance programs, Patrick has provided coaching in his independent practice. Patrick served for several years as substance misuse consultant for the Boston Red Sox organization. And we're really excited to have him on the show today. And so welcome, Patrick. Well, thank you so much, Sean and Bill. I really appreciate the opportunity to be with you. Oh, we appreciate it, too. Um, I thought we could start by you elaborating a little bit about your practice, um, what you do day to day, um, and what some of your interests are. Uh, absolutely. And uh, and one thing, if I may, uh, I just want to tell you guys that I love your podcast and I love your advocacy work in general that you're doing and the way that you both are putting yourself out there. Um, I mean, you really, you really are my heroes, um, and you are really role models for people in recovery and for people who want to give back and through sharing lived experience, um, some of it very, um, it must be awkward or maybe not to talk about, but it's pretty, uh, pretty amazing uh, the journeys, the paths that your lives have taken and how you've gotten yourselves into just a really positive uh, recovery life. And um, so it's just really amazing and something that I've been admiring greatly for the past few years as as soon as I came across you guys. So this is uh, pretty exciting for me. So thank you for everything that you're doing by, by putting that out there. Yeah, thank you, Patrick. Um, feelings mutual. Uh, great respect for the work that you do as well. Looking forward to hearing more about it. Yeah, well, thanks. And um, to, it's, it's to make a, a long story boring, uh, I've been uh, working in 
mental health and addictions for 30 years or so. And um, in terms of how I've come to this place where uh, I am really passionate about helping families gain recovery from the impact of addiction on them, and also many times helping the person with the addiction gain health and recovery as well, I would have to go back. I mean, basically, I uh, was raised in a, a very loving family, a very large family. I'm one of seven kids. And so it, it was also a pretty high stress family environment. And um, maybe just having seven kids and juggling everything, uh, it was a lot of responsibilities on my parents. And so it was a uh, it it was a loving environment and um, if we broke the rules it could be maybe a bit harsh environment as well in terms of discipline and such uh, and I I remember uh, it was the I remember back in the day I wished that my family could have gotten some sort of professional help um, maybe family therapy family support of some kind some sort of counseling help to help us, uh, my parents and us, kind of manage the challenges of life. We never got that kind of help. And uh, so when I uh, got professional help myself through counseling through uh, and started my recovery from depression, I got really interested in that whole process. And I was really intrigued by the therapeutic relationship and how counseling could be so helpful for people, studied it in college and worked in the field and decided that that was my life's passion and felt like that was what I was meant to do with my life. And I wanted to give back and I thought I might have a knack for it. Went to graduate school and worked on an inpatient uh, dual diagnosis hospital unit and became very interested in not only behavioral health, um, but especially addiction and maybe even more than that, dual diagnosis addiction when there's a co-occurring disorder. And then bringing up to more recent years, uh, I've always enjoyed working with addiction. I've worked in a variety of settings and I've always enjoyed working with families, and that was a family treatment and family being involved in treatment of addiction has was part of my early training. And I got to experience the power and the value of having the family involved. And as time went by, I wasn't seeing much of that family involvement in addiction treatment. And I wasn't seeing a lot of resources or assistance or help or relief for families that were really going through a very difficult time with addiction in the family. And so I, it occurred to me that that was a, it was an underserved population, if you will. And there, are how many millions of families with addiction in them? At, at one time or another. And so I've devoted my career to helping families gain their own recovery 
from the impact of addiction on them and spreading accurate information about treatment and also about substance use and addiction. And so it's become my passion and I've seen, we've had a lot of success with the families that I've worked with and it's very, it's very exciting to see a family go through a transformation and get into their own recovery. So we're getting really positive results and uh, it's just exciting and, and I consider it a real privilege. Uh, I'm humbled by the ability that I have to have an impact in uh, the health and recovery of a family that's that's really suffering. Yeah, I, I think the family is critical. It's, it's a critical piece that's not discussed enough and it's not addressed enough. Um, I know for me, you know, my family was critical in my recovery and still is to this day. And it's been five years. Um, awesome. and things, and things, re- and things really change, right? I mean, the individual is one piece of the puzzle and, and often, you know, the other pieces, there's just so much else there that affects everything. And, and even the individual as they change and they get into recovery and they're changing, everything around them is changing. Um, and it's like, it's like a puzzle where the shapes of the pieces are always changing. Um, and it can be really challenging. And, you know, I, I know like where I went to treatment, you know, they had a family program, but it was, you know, it was just, I, I guess it's what they could do, but it was, <clears throat> excuse me, just, um, it was about a week long, um, and you just can't do much, right? Like, like once you leave treatment, the real journey begins, and I don't think we do enough once people leave treatment to help families heal and address that, and I, I think it's really powerful um, what you're doing. I think it's necessary. It's a necessary part of the solution. Um, and so, yeah, it's amazing. I mean, um, do you, do you find, it's gotta be really challenging. Like when I think about it, I know the family's a critical piece. Um, and I know you've probably seen some, you know, success stories, but you know, there's gotta be other challenges too, right? When you, when you bring two or three other people in, um, to the picture, right? Well, I, 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 I can't imagine, I, I just can't even fathom what that must be like, honestly. I mean, having gone through 32 treatments, uh, 16 of them, uh, I was married, and my wife wasn't a part of any of it. And even when I got out of treatment, uh, so I got out of treatment right into 90 and 90 in a 12-step program, and I distinctly remember hearing every day people talk about how I have a program now, so my life is going to be so much better, but my wife, she doesn't have a program, and until she gets her own program, you're never going to be on the same page, and in some ways, it created this division. Uh, It wasn't until I sort of abandoned that, and we started working together as a couple and started being really honest about what, what led to my substance use, you know, what was addiction like, why did I keep doing it, what was... And what's early recovery like? What am I struggling with? Until we both got on the same page and started really dissecting what had happened and where we needed to heal, um, I mean, we, we would have been we would have been divorced. And 
I'm just still fascinated that nothing was ever done to bring us together uh, to at least prepare for that. And so the idea that you do this, Patrick, is just so, one, it's mind-blowing because nobody does it. But it's just, I mean, but it's also a duh moment. Like, of course. Yeah. This, this, This should be incorporated into addiction treatment. And so I'm really fascinated. Like, how how does that work? What like Sean was just asking, what's that dynamic like when you bring people together? And and I'd be really interested to know the difference between uh, parent and children relationships versus uh, spouses or couples and ones with children. Like, what what is the what are the unique challenges that each one presents for you? And the re- let me just add one more thing. The reason why I asked that is because when I got into treatment. The, the strategy was to isolate me from my family, yes. right, and limit contact. Yep. And then even as I was leaving, and I was in treatment for four months, um, even when I was leaving, there was a lot of questions about, you know, is the home environment going to be okay? Maybe she's not right for you. In fact, it was really kind of stated pretty firmly that she's not right that that you guys need to go your separate ways because she's not good wow. for you um and, and so which is yeah which is shocking like i spent four months somewhere they don't know anything about her you know and they're making these you know broad statements um where i really you know i came home and i was very like i was on the defensive and i was constantly questioning and and maybe that was you know a good thing um Maybe it's maybe it wasn't. I mean, I, I don't know. But anyhow, so back to Bill's questions and the, and the strategies and the challenges. I, w- I would love to hear them. That's um, outrageous. It's disturbing. And yet I've, I've heard that a lot, Sean, that um, there are the as we've discussed before, the addiction treatment industry is very tra- it's very traditional It's been around for, what, 85 years? Well, AA has been around for 85 years or so, and the addiction treatment industry was basically modeled on the 12 steps of AA. And there are certain notions that have come out of that, which what we know now is that they don't make any sense. Um, And like certain terms like enabling... Um, and codependency. Now, codependency never was a thing. It was very popular, and you still hear it a lot, but there was a tendency in the addiction treatment industry to fault the family, uh, blame the family, whether it be a spouse, whether it be a parent, uh, or even an adult child, but the family, as if the family caused the addiction, and and to isolate the person with the addiction from their family, no matter how f- supportive the family is. Now, I don't understand where that came from, but it's definitely the it's the rule out there in the treatment world. It's not it's not an exception. And what I found much more useful is to bring gather information from the family as well as the the patient, the person with the addiction, so that you have a broader perspective. If you think about it, if a person's been 
had a serious substance issue to have required them to go into a residential program, they they haven't been really aware of what's been going on lately a lot of the time, right? Because they are in an altered state of consciousness. And so they're not always able to pick up on subtle cues or see what's going on around them. And people in addiction tend to be highly focused on getting the substance, using the substance, and then how are they going to get some more? So they lose, they tend to lose track of what's going on with other people in the family. So these, to get information, collateral information, and for example, uh, one, the first episode of my podcast, Family Addiction Coaching Podcast, uh, we interviewed uh, Bill's wife, and it was really interesting to hear how she was virtually totally shut out of her husband's treatment and and that's that's the rule that's what tends to happen and so how how an individualized treatment plan can be developed without having collateral information from credible sources such as a loving family how you can develop an individualized treatment plan i don't know I don't know that there are a lot of individualized treatment plans that are really developed. But in programs where I have worked, where one program I worked in as the social worker on an inpatient residential unit for substance use disorder, my job was to meet with every family once a week for an hour, initially to gather information and hear the family's perspective and bring that into the treatment of that individual. But also beyond that, it was supporting the family, helping them understand about the current treatment plan, helping them understand about the needs of the patient when they were approaching discharge and what was going to happen after discharge. And we saw so much benefit from doing that. And for example, People in early recovery, they generally are, for the most part, they're generally feeling fairly positive about their recovery. They're feeling pretty good. They're feeling better than they have in a long time, maybe. And when they are discharged and they go home, they don't understand why people are still mad at them, (laughs) you know, because, I mean, they've left that the past in the past. And so if they're not, if they're getting any kind of like tension or distance or anger from family members that the behavior of addiction might have been harmful to, they don't get it. And, and that's understandable. And the, the treatment programs, they don't really prepare people. So one of the things I started doing when I was working with the patients was just educating them on that and say, you know, It'll really be helpful if you understand that while you are feeling good, positive, optimistic, and that's really that's really useful in early recovery, you know, stay with that. It's also important that you understand that when there's been a pattern of um, collateral damage that the addiction has caused, not only did it hurt you as the patient, but it's hurt your family. It takes time for people to come to terms with that and to even understand it. So just 
be careful, be aware of that. And we would coach the patients on on how do we anticipate for that and also how to try to open the door on discussing that and learning how to accept that kind of feedback and how they can best respond to that so that they hopefully still maintain their positivity and and their commitment to recovery and and with following through with aftercare and such and living a healthier lifestyle it, it's also they need to be sensitive and and they oftentimes need assistance with dealing with um resentments that may still be out there and might still be out there for a long time yeah for sure i mean i i wish that i had something like that i mean trish and i my wife trish who you talked about earlier that you interviewed her uh, on your podcast but i mean we pretty much white knuckled it and and winged it through early recovery uh, and that was a rough year. It would have been so the the transition would have been, and it, it probably would have never been seamless uh, from inpatient to home and outpatient. But it would have made it so much easier had someone done the work that that you do, at least some type of preparation, some type of groundwork, or and a and some type, at least the beginning stages of a of a plan of where we're going to move forward to. Um, I mean, when I got out of treatment, yeah, when I got out of treatment, we had no idea. Trish had no idea what to expect. I, I mean, I was so beat down at that point. Um, like, I didn't really know what to expect. I wasn't sure if our marriage was going to survive. I didn't know if we were going to, you know, retain custody of our foster son at the time. We were, who were in the, the later stages of adoption. Um, there were so many things that were up in the air, and none of the counseling staff um, at any of the treatment centers I went to had any communication whatsoever with her. And so, you know, I spent these 30 days in treatment or quote unquote treatment. Uh, you know, I spent in a treatment center, um, you know, building, you know, painting pumpkins and doing yoga and, and all that kind of stuff, but not really working on things therapeutically that I had identified at that point. Um, and so it was just, it was a really weird, hard transition because I felt like I had a really good, solid hold on myself at that point. Uh, I really started to understand what makes me tick. I started to understand what drove my use to begin with. Um, and at that point, I was so willing to talk about it because, I mean, for me, it was this great epiphany of like, I finally figured out why I use drugs and what the what the reason is. And when I came home, I was so excited to tell my wife about it and she did not want to hear it. Uh, at that point, she wanted security. She wanted um, just something solid in our life. And after 16 times, for her, it was like, yeah, okay, when's it going to happen again? Are we going to be going through this again? Right. Um, so we were on completely different ends of the universe. And, you know, I, I really don't know how we survived because it should have fallen apart. Uh, that shouldn't have worked. Right. Uh, I mean, I think, and I think that's why I go back to so many times about what has what drives my recovery and what sustains my recovery and what was the the initial catalyst was uh our love for one another like her unconditional love towards me and mine towards hers and a commitment that we're going to get through this um but my gosh how do you overlook that as a counselor or a therapist or a clinician i just i it boggles my mind how that was overlooked yeah 
I, I think the answer is as simple as most of the staff working in treatment, residential treatment facilities have virtually no training. They don't have advanced degrees. They don't get good supervision. And they're, uh, most of them are in recovery, pretty early recovery. And they feel good about recovery and how they got sober. And they feel like they can share that with other people. And so that's understandable. And the facilities, there's, it's not an insurance reimbursable type of service to get family involved in the treatment. You know, there's no CPT code for that, getting family involved in treatment. Uh, so they don't get paid for it. So it's all overhead cost. They don't understand how important it is because of their limited training. And so that's what happens. And I agree with you, Bill. It's uh, really amazing how you both and your love for each other and the health that you each had, even though it might not, you might not have felt very healthy just leaving the program, but there was obviously health and there was something inside of you that kept you working at it and, and also within your wife that kept her working at it. And somehow you found a way to learn how to trust in to overcome that despite the odds. So you guys did a great job with that. Many people, maybe even most people, they don't fare so well. And you did ask earlier about spouses of people in treatment and what we're seeing is that there's not much if any recognition or any support given to a spouse of someone in treatment the whole industry and the current narrative is that people become addicted when they're i don't know 15 years old to 18 years old or so and that the vast majority of people with addiction are teenagers, maybe real young adults, uh, before people are likely to get married. And that's not the case at all. It, but the, the treatment industry is molded towards that stereotype of the, the young person who started using before the frontal cortex got developed and is causing all sorts of difficulties and so that's the way that the treatment industry is looking at it but there's so many people of say the middle years if you will suffering with addiction who need treatment and there's so many seniors who are in active addiction and there's not much for done for seniors either they're really unrecognized and we, as a society, it seems like we don't think of seniors as almost as if they're not capable of developing an addiction illness. It's fascinating. It's something that I never thought about consciously, but it's interesting that so my experience, Trisha's experience in treatment, that everything was very much geared and structured and framed uh, at looking at parents. Like everybody, the family that came in were addressed parents for your kid, for your kid. 
Like I was, I was sort of an anomaly, uh, being a, an older married person with a family, but thinking about the people who listen to this or potentially listen to this podcast, health professionals, you know, physicians, nurses, PAs, nurse practitioners, uh, whoever else, the population that we're speaking to is more likely to be people who have families who are older that their parents aren't involved in their lives. Uh, and I would imagine that many of them were probably really surprised when they ended up in a treatment center, how much it was geared, one, that they were going to be treated as an adolescent. Um, because you hear that nonsense all the time that, you know, your, your maturity and your growth stopped the first time you did drugs and it's, it's been sustained there. You know, it's, it's been trapped there forever and which is nonsense. Um, but you hear that all the time, but I mean, you're treated as an adolescent, uh, and you're treated as a kid, uh, and everything is, nobody really knows what to do when you have a spouse, but the, our, our audience are people that most likely have our husbands, wives, uh, who have families and mortgages and, all the other things, most, probably most of their life has been a life filled with responsibility and meeting expectations um, and valuing responsibility in their life. So it's just interesting to me. I hadn't really thought about it before, about the like our particular subgroup as health professionals, um, like our recovery planning needs uh, are different um, than the general population, I would imagine. And there's also no treatment center that's set up for that. Now, there are treatment centers that have programs specifically designed for nurses or physicians, but that really generally just means, you know, you might have a group three times a week that's the nurse group, and you get to bitch and complain about being in a, in a program. It's not really to address what are the unique things about a health professional who struggles with substance use and is now entering into recovery. What specific things should we tailor to them different than the general population? Uh, even... I even think it's it's difficult as a health professional to be put in the general population in a treatment center with a bunch of other people. I found it extraordinarily difficult to have someone who had a, such a high-functioning career uh, as a nurse, someone that, that I valued my career, I was respected in my career, and nobody that I met in treatment really could understand what that was like. So I was either uh, outcast from the population or I had to sort of uh, hide and put on a, you know, a mask or a costume to blend in with the other population. And so, you know, it's just, I know that's sort of off, off the topic of families, but it's just interesting that most treatment centers are going to be geared towards parents, but the population that we're talking to isn't, we're most likely all family people. Right. And isn't it just another barrier that we put in the way of a health professional feeling comfortable asking for help because it, it's, I mean, along with all the other barriers that we put in the way for health professionals, they don't fit that stereotypical, you know, 18 to 23 year old youth category, that, that assumption, that bias that we have. And so that they, it, it's just another barrier that makes it even more difficult. And as you say, then they end up in a program that doesn't have, anything for them and their unique needs and it's it's uh, i'm sure that it keeps a lot of people in the health professions from recognizing addiction from being able to accept it and accept the need for help and to reach out for help because they're not they're not seeing it recognized yeah i totally agree with that
Yeah, I have a little different take. I, I actually, when I went to treatment, looked for a program that did not have health professionals in it because I didn't want to be, I didn't want to be seen as special, you know, and different. I just wanted to be like everybody else. Yeah. And I, I don't really know where that came from, but I, I thought it would be healthier for me, you know, because my experience with my colleagues was there was a lot of ego, you know, a lot of narcissism, um, yeah. a lot of, you know, this exceptionalism that we talk about, which I, to me, I found very difficult to deal with because of my childhood and how my father was. Um but I looked for a program where there weren't people like me and I got into that program and it was going well. And I remember like halfway through the therapist saying, so people found out I was a physician and suddenly I became the helper again, right? Everybody uh -huh. was turning to me with questions and, you know, the therapist said, Sean, you're like, you're taking on your role as a physician. Like you're here for you to help you heal and address your stuff and you're taking care of everybody else. And I didn't even realize I was doing it. Well, I mean, it's in, it's, yeah, it's inherent. You know I mean? It, I think that that happens naturally. Uh, Sean, let me ask you this. Had, before you went into treatment, had you ever gone to any like mutual aid, like 12 step meetings or anything like that beforehand? Didn't know what they were. That's fascinating <laughs> because, because in, in my 40s with a raging substance use disorder yeah. and didn't have a clue. And I remember getting down to Florida where I went to treatment and then them taking us on a bus to the first AA meeting and going to this big room and there was like a disco ball in the middle of the room. Um, was this massive, uh, just this massive venue. It was a very large AA meeting. And I was looking around like, who are these people? Am, yeah. I, on, am I on Mars or something? Right. Wow. And, and, you know, thinking to myself, I don't have anything in common with these people. And within two or three days, I was like, boy, I'm exactly like everybody in here, you know, and this is my yeah. spot, you know, and I didn't at first, you know, this whole higher power thing, I had a problem with it. So, you know, they were like, anything can be your higher power. And I made the disco ball my higher power. Now, eventually yeah. I came, al I came along. Oh, well, it's great. Well, yeah. I still was out of my mind. You know, I had yeah. stimulants for a long time. Yeah. Um, yeah. And it took me a while to come down. But the fog didn't really clear for 30 days. And the family wasn't aside. And I mean, in the defense of the program, and I think families are important, we have to deal with it. But in defense of the program, like I did need to kind of be selfish and just focus on me at first. Now, I thought the two 15-minute phone calls a week seemed pretty strict, um, but I thought that that was just the way it is until my roommate, who had been in prison, said, you realize you get more phone calls in prison. And then I was like, wow, this oh, is bad, man. right? <laughs> yes. It's true. I mean, the reason the reason I had asked, though, is is with you saying that you, you didn't want to be different, you didn't want anything special. You know, I was wondering if it was related to the, you know, the, your, you think you're terminally unique kind of nonsense that you typically hear in recovery circles. And that, yeah, I was wondering if you were just conditioned already to think there's nothing spectacular, there's nothing unique about me. I'm just like everybody else. Um, that was the reason I, I asked. I wanted to be like everybody else. I didn't want to be the helper. I was tired of carrying 
the weight, my own weight and everybody else's weight. Um, And I didn't know how to ask for help. I I didn't see it modeled. My colleagues didn't ask for help. In my family, people didn't ask for help. It was suck it up, you know, and just, you know, keep moving forward. Whatever it is, you don't know the answer, make it up. Um, All the classic stuff. But I didn't, I wanted to let go of it. I really, like when I went into treatment, I had never been before. I was ready to let it go, but things were bad. Things were bad. I mean, my wife was leaving, understandably. She was ready to take the kids and leave because, you know, the way I was behaving was very toxic and very damaging. And I wasn't even aware of it. You know, I always say I remember her standing in the kitchen looking at me. I don't even know who you are anymore. I don't recognize you. And me saying, what do you mean? It's me. But but finally having the realization that, wow, something is wrong, really wrong, because I don't even recognize that I am not me anymore, right? Like I believed her words that that you are not yourself anymore. You know, I finally believed. And that's when I was like, okay. I, I gotta, I gotta get help, you know, and I, and I went away and that was a powerful thing. And for me, I, like, I think I did at first need that separation from family. I, yeah. I think family became really important and is still important to this day, um, to fuel my recovery and stability and, and having that, you know, unconditional love. But I yeah. think early on, and I was away for four months, um, I did, Gosh, I, I, well, I know it's a long time, but, you know, it, like I, I needed it. I did need, you yeah. know, when I was down there, I wanted to leave every month, but the fog didn't clear for 30 days. And then I really got, you know, just got started to work. And then four months in, I was ready to leave. But then the real work, you know, just begins when you leave. So, Like you said something earlier, Patrick, about this stuff takes time, right? And it it really takes time. And we all, especially me, like I want it now, you know, Right. Um, and I want things to change. And we'll be like, okay, the past is the past. But I wasn't even aware of the damage that I had caused. Like, and even today, I occasionally get glimpses of, wow. I can't believe X or I can't believe Y. Like I'm still gaining insight into how my behavior affected things around me. It it takes a long time and the healing takes a yeah. long time. Um, yeah. And it is an up and down, you know, it's a journey that's, that's up and down and still goes up and down. Um, I think it's going to be a lifetime, right? But, you know, yeah. you keep, keep moving forward and growing, but the, you have to be like – I hate these AA slogans, but they say like a slow recovery is a good recovery. And and I do believe that to be true. I, I yeah. really did. At first, I didn't understand it. I didn't want it to be true. Um, I right. still today don't necessarily want it to be true. But but it's 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 really true. You know, it, this stuff is. And, and if you think about it, it makes sense. Right. Like for 40 years, I was acting a certain way, you know, had developed these survival strategies, you know, yeah. Um, and you know, in a few months in treatment and a few years of recovery, I think everything's going back to normal. Like it's just, you know, that's, right. it doesn't make any sense. It, it's going to take time. Yeah. Um, so and, I and think patience is, I'm learning to be patient. I'm not very good at it, but I'm learning to be patient. The valuable <laughs> skill, the valuable talent being patient. 
and and if I not to interrupt Sean, I think it's interesting in hearing your, each of your descriptions of what was important to you when you went into treatment, Bill and Sean, it reminds me of how important it is to have individualized assessments and to offer patients multiple paths, including how much family involvement they would like. And so for yep. one, for one, for Bill, family involvement would have been a tremendous asset and would have really contributed to the treatment he because Bill wanted it and his wife wanted to do that too and so it it would have made perfect sense that, that she should have been involved and there should have been you know couples therapy type of work to some extent on the other hand Sean for whatever reason he didn't want that and he had a sense that he needed to be alone and so for that, that for him was was right, and it reminds me of how how important it is and the critical thing is that is to not rush to judgment or not judge what other people want or what other people find helpful or useful, even though it might be different what than what I would want, you know, and and so that's that's how important it is and. Just like with treatment modalities and medication and smart recovery, refuge recovery, AA, cognitive behavioral therapy, whatever, it's it always helps to have options and to have choices and for patients to be offered all options and have a choice. The evidence is pretty clear. People who feel that they are in control of their destiny, that they are making informed choices on their health care tend to have better outcomes in treatment. But right there, but I mean, right there, I think is a couple things, but right there is one of the roadblocks in, in traditional uh, addiction treatment and traditional recovery thought that if you say that I want to be in control of something that's immediately looked at as a negative and uh, if, if like when I would talk about my wife and my kids and how much I wanted to see them and I wanted them a part of, I was immediately labeled as codependent. You're codependent on one another. So that's the thing. Unless and a lot of this is based in the whole surrender thing. Uh, you need yeah, to you're just not surrender. admit you're powerless. Right. 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 You need to surrender. And until you do that, everything that you do or everything that you exhibit is going to be a negative. And, and I just I don't think that's helpful at all. Uh, but that's what you're going to run into, even though. All of the evidence and everything that we know about counseling and about personal growth uh, says the opposite of those things, and I think that's where, and it's it's not an it's not a twelve step thing. I mean, it's it's the it's the treatment industry's adoption of twelve step and taking it to an unhealthy level. I don't think that's what they meant when they talked about powerlessness. It's powerless over alcohol, and that's the only time that it's mentioned is in step one. All the subsequent steps. Uh, seem to read between the lines that you actually become powerful over your addiction, over whatever substance that is, uh, through the work, which a lot of the 12 steps mimic, uh, you know, CBT. I mean, you, you're, it's all about behavior change. Uh, but I think we've 
a lot of people in treatment, uh, like you said, they're they're essentially just peers. They're a bunch of people that got into recovery through a certain pathway. Typically, it's twelve step. They push that on people, but there's a lot of dogma that's been dumped on top of twelve steps that was never intended to be there. And but that's what you get filled with in treatment. To the point that if you come in there as as an adult who is, so say you go into treatment, you develop a substance use disorder or you have problematic substance use at the age of 40 and you go into treatment, up until that point in your life, you probably were a a very healthy, responsible, professional uh, and did things really well and were well in control of your life. But you're not going to be treated that way. You're going to be treated as if your entire life has been out of control and you need to be controlled now and until you relinquish all that control and say that you uh, yeah, that you don't want to be in control of that. Uh, you're never going to heal. So, I mean, it, there's just such a counterproductive um, system set up from the gate that I think is geared towards failure instead of success. Uh, and Sean and I talk about this all the time. We, we still see this because uh, I'm still in a monitoring program and everything is designed about controlling me instead of me deciding. Go ahead, Sean. Well, that, no, I was just going to say, like, we're in a unique position because when you're in a professional, healthcare professional monitoring program, all the stuff you're talking about is magnified many-fold. Right. Because a doctor or a nurse trying to take back their will and direct their life in any way is considered a real liability and a danger. And, and, right? a, red you ha- and, a, and a major red flag. Right. Because, you know, you're smart, you're capable. If we give this person a license. Right. What are they going to do? You know, they're going to be running rampant, you know, through the hospital you know, causing chaos and damage, which we, I mean, we know for the most part is not true, but but it's, but it's, I mean, that, that is the thing, right? And there, you know, the monitoring program is protecting the public, quote unquote, um, from, from us, you know, so, so that is a really, that is an extra bad quality, taking back your will, not surrendering, not admitting powerlessness when you're a healthcare provider. Um, that makes you and it's not something we're more. used to doing. No, it's not. Not yeah. not at and, all. And, and I don't mean that in. A, I mean that in a positive way. I mean our, you know, as healthcare professionals, what we do, you know, people come to us with the expectation. People come to us with chaos and expect that we know how to handle that chaos. So our everything about our our identity as that in that profession has to do with controlling chaotic environments. So so to think that. We're in complete chaos. I mean, that that's a massive undertaking to try to dismantle that. Well, it's like everybody is treated to the extreme. Like, there's just an assumption that you were at the extreme end. Sure. You know, and you've got and you've got to squeeze everybody like you talk like Patrick, you were talking about having many paths. Right. I mean, that's the way. Yeah. But health programs, there is one path. And that path caters to the most extreme situation or clinical case. Um, and as long as you go through that, everything's fine because there are no, you know, there's just no gray. It's like it's all or none. And that's just not how substance use disorders work, mental health, you know, issues no. work. Um, no. it, everything's on a spectrum. Yeah, everything's on a spectrum, but yeah. but that's not how that's treated. And one of the things I heard you talk about, Patrick, just shifting gears is. Your mindset seems to be very harm reduction-y 
you know, so yes. to speak, um, Absolutely. which I love clearly. And I know Bill loves too. <laughs> um, and it's just like when I hear you talking about, you're basically saying meet people where they're at, you know, show them yeah. many paths, guide them, you know, build power within them to make choices that are right for them in their life. Yeah. Like, I, I love this stuff. Is that is that like common in a family therapist? Because it's I mean, something it's something unique, something really special I that it, I don't think I, I've heard before. Yeah, I wish it, I wish it was common. I mean, it it's it's interesting. You hear it like in the social work profession they're one of their values is meeting people where they're at and empowering people and the whole concept of self-determination is the, a core value of the social work profession which is one of the reasons I'm really happy I trained in social work and why I became a social worker because I really believe in that and that nobody else should have the right to tell another person what's best for them or what they need to do. But rather our role as a clinical social worker is to educate, support and empower an individual to make their best decisions because they need to be, take full responsibility for their healthcare decisions and nobody can really decide for them. And so it, it's one of the things I love about being a social worker. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've said that to people. I've said it to someone today, uh, someone who was uh, pursuing a certain path in treatment. And I said to them, well, I don't agree with your choice. However, much more important than that is that I fully support your need to make that decision. And I, you go to town with that. You take that and run with that. Because you're the one, you're the only one who can make those decisions for yourself, and I have no right to to try to influence it unduly or to try to change your mind. And so it, it's, you know, I, I probably say it maybe not every day, but very a, a lot of times, and and people appreciate that and they take it as respectful, and people do much better with that kind of approach. I'm sure they do. Uh, I mean, it's it's funny, you know. Both Sean and I. I mean, you know that we're, we're we would consider ourselves harm reductionists, uh, but it's fascinating after really, really gaining a lot of understanding about what harm reduction is and what it isn't. Uh, it's such a no-brainer for us. I mean, it it just makes sense. It's like I said, it's how people want to be treated. I don't want you to tell me where you think I should be. Uh, I want you to help me figure out where I want to be and walk with me to get there exactly and in terms of working with families you the intervention the old style johnson intervention approach uh which is you know hitting someone with a sledgehammer and telling them that if they don't get on a plane and fly off to a residential program today that the family isn't going to talk to them ever again um that kind of approach what I'm seeing with my families is, is that most families don't feel comfortable with that. And uh, and maybe, I don't know, maybe those are the families that are attracted to something like family addiction coaching. They they don't want to give up on a person. They 
they want to continue to have a relationship with their loved one, regardless of whether the loved one is in recovery, is agreeing to treatment, or even wants recovery. They still want to have a relationship. And I, I oftentimes use the analogy, suppose your loved one had HIV and, and had developed AIDS and for whatever reason was refusing to get treatment for the AIDS. Would you turn your back on your loved one? Would you kick them out of the house? Would you cut off any kind of financial support to them? And the families invariably, they say, well, no, why, why would we do that? I said, bingo. Think about addiction in the same kind of way and that, you know, let your heart guide you. And so these families, when, when, we, when they hear that there's another approach other than detachment, which is a big part of Al-Anon, versus the Johnson intervention model, which is controlling that other person, they, they love hearing about this harm reduction option. And it's, uh, it, it's, uh, you can see the relief coming from them. You can see it over the phone. I do all this work over the phone. Um, so I can't literally see it, but you hear them, you hear their sense of relief that, and they want to learn more about this. Yeah, I still want to have a relationship with my husband, with my wife, with my son, with my father, even though they're not buying what I'm trying to sell them. How can I do that? And we're having a lot of success with that. And that's, that's a real strong part of the family recovery approach. And we teach families how to accept that other person for however they are, whatever their choices are. And that also allows the family to, while they're accepting that, it allows them to turn some of their attention and focus back onto their own self-care, which really helps a lot because, as I explained to the families, you can... It, it, maybe you can help your loved one with the addiction if you're not taking care of yourself, but it's it's a lot harder to do, and a lot of people can't do it. To if you can take care of yourself and be have a healthy lifestyle and have a boundary and draw a line over and make a decision about what kind of support you're going to offer, then you're going to be much more available to that person with the addiction, no matter how they respond to your outreach. And, and you won't be so angry. You won't be so resentful. And if there's a family or a client family that I work best with, that I see the best results from the family coaching, that's the family. They, they don't want to give up. They don't want to reject the person. And they don't want to hear that they're enabling. They don't want to hear that they're codependent. That model doesn't work for them. So when I explain to them there's no such thing, it's such a, a they, they sh I hear the sighs of relief on the phone. I explain, you're enabling them to live. And it's your choice. And it's my job to help you understand the risks and benefits of different options and help you come to your best decision. And it, just a quick, interesting story aside. Sometimes I'm faced with a family situation and there's some people in the family who are supporting a certain kind of approach, maybe the intervention approach. Other members of the family are not interested in doing that. And sometimes it happens that some people are asking me to try to convince, you know, the other member to support this idea of this intervention. And 
while I may bring it up as an option, I will never try to influence them. And if I'm speaking to that other family member who says, you know, they don't have it in them or they don't think it's right, they don't feel up to doing an intervention, then I say, thank you. I appreciate your honesty. And that decision is right for you. And so thank you for sharing. Thank you for doing that. So they decided that they're not going to come to the intervention that the other family members want to want to have. Um, but it's uh, it, it's it's important. Sometimes we get a we bring the families together with conference calling and we can bring them to a consensus of an approach that makes sense to people. And and that that can be very helpful. It's a united front kind of thing. And sometimes we can't, or sometimes it just takes longer to come up with a, a consensus. And and with that situation I'm referring to, um, a few months later, we were at much more of a consensus building step. The intervention didn't work when the patient found out that they were about to get on a plane to fly far away. They basically jumped out of the car and they said, what? I didn't agree to this. And and it, it can damage the trust. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> That's um, a great story, Patrick. Yeah. What um good. Patrick, what <laughs> what are what are some <laughs> what are some some things that you often would like people to know or families to know? Um that maybe they don't like, I, I know there's a lot of fear and confusion, um, especially you have a loved one go into treatment, right. And suddenly, you know, you're being brought into this situation. And I know many families, um, like I think of a few examples where the family is like, well, you just deal with your problems and everything will be fine. And obviously it's a lot more complex than that. Yeah. Um, I mean, how do you, how do you deal with that? Um, do you try and engage those families? I mean, I know that it, that's often a, a, a key piece of the puzzle, right? Um, do you back off? Do you, what's, what's your strategy like in that situation? Well, my strategy, great question, Sean. Um, I try to slow down my rate of speech <laughs> <laughs> you know, and I try to be, you know, I lower my tone of voice, I lower my volume so I can keep myself in check. And I say, you know, there's another way, there's another approach that is available for, for treatment, for approaching your loved one. Would you like to hear about it? And th there are other approaches that are finding a lot of success. Would you... And then sometimes they say yes. Sometimes they say, no, no, I, I know what I want to do. I don't want to hear anything about that. I, a common one is I don't want any medication. I don't want to mm -hmm. exchange one drug for another. That's crazy. That's the last thing I want to do. And, and, and there's a real backlash against medication. And it's still out there. I get calls all the time from people who want to get into treatment and I always broach the idea of, especially with opioid use disorder, about how medications have been proven to improve the mortality rate by 70%. And 
usually people don't want to hear it. They've been, it's like they've been brainwashed by the culture, by our society into thinking that medication is just a bad thing. Um, so I run into that a, a lot, Sean. And I think what it is, is that the whole treatment industry in our, in our society, we're, we're so programmed and we're so wired to look for easy, quick solutions that if someone comes along and says, you know something, there are nuances and it might not be that simple. You might want to consider this. You might want to consider that. Most people don't want to hear that. Right. And, yeah. and, and the, the conventional <clears throat> wisdom with addiction treatment is, makes it pretty simple. Basically, the treatment centers say, send your loved one to us for 30, 60, 90 days and we will cure them. They'll be much better off. And families like families at that point, most of them are ready for a break. So they 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 like the idea of somebody going away for a, even if it's just a week because it gives them a respite. It gives them some relief. And people who work in treatment programs, they don't they don't like nuance. They don't like shades of gray. They like black and white. So that's what these families and patients hear from the treatment providers who are considered experts that we know how to do it. This is tried and true. In a lot of cases, I'm an example of that. You can trust your loved one with our program. And I mean, what love, what family is not going to want to hear that kind of that mm-hmm. kind of reassurance it's a false it's a hollow reassurance but they don't know that so th- there's what we're really fighting against that conventional wisdom and we're mm-hmm. in- introducing the complexity and nuance and you know maybe the idea of sending your loved one out to mm-hmm. hazelden in minnesota uh, you know against their wishes maybe that's not the best approach See, it 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 takes. I think it takes a, sometimes a special kind of person to hear that and to say, you know, I've been wondering that myself. There's something about this deceptive approach and this strong arm approach that I don't really feel comfortable with. It, you know, I know the the doctor's recommending it, the the counselor, the interventionist is recommending it, but I just don't feel comfortable with it. Isn't there something else? And so I I'm I'm gentle with people and. And I also say, you, you, with the families, you need to make your own decisions about what you pursue. I'm available. And sometimes I hear from them a year later. And mm-hmm. they tried it in a certain kind of way of not really addressing it. But then a, the condition deteriorated. A year later, they call up and they say, you know, things aren't going so well. Can Can we talk to you at this point? And of course, I welcome them. And do an update and say, okay, how would you like to proceed? And and that can be very helpful. So it's the kind of thing where you plant seeds and you, you hope that they grow. You mm-hmm. you hope that people do be, do well, whatever approach. And you water take. those seeds. Yeah. And, yeah. It, absolutely. And you, you, you nurture them. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, and I think it, to treat patients and families with respect and dignity to support them making their best decision even if you're thinking, oh, my God, no chance in hell. But but to support them in doing that and to wish them well and to say, I'd like to hear how things are going in the future. 
I mean, imagine what kind of response that that can elicit in in a family or a patient to feel supported no matter what I decide to do. That would That's be powerful. so it'd be so yeah. cool. Yeah. Yeah. What do you think the other question I had for you is there's there's kind of a bit of a, a movement away from treatment altogether and keeping people in the community and engaging in recovery centers and doing intensive outpatient. I mean, clearly, for some cases, you would need treatment. But, you know, that there are some people saying that's kind of going to be kind of a rare event, right? Um, that keeping people out with their families, you know, maybe still working while they're getting treatment is the way forward. Is that is that something you think is sustainable or something that, that could be the future of, of substance use disorder care? It's interesting. Um, I've become aware there's a program in certain parts of New England that will actually send professionals into your home to basically do medically supervised withdrawal, to do what is typically called rehab. Um, they come to your home and do all of that for however long you need it, like a visiting nurse would do, which appeals to a lot of people. Some people don't want to go away. Now, I, I, to tell you the truth, I haven't seen a track record for that particular program. It seems like it might be challenging to manage for patient safety and, and monitor patients but it, it is something that I just learned about, say, a month ago. So, and that speaks to what, what you said, Sean, that there's a movement away from residential programs at a distance to something that could even be in your own home. Um, now, one of the problems that I'm sure you guys have seen this as well is sometimes you go away to a distant program and oftentimes there's no aftercare set up. And basically, you're, when your stint is done, you get on a plane, you come home, and the family doesn't know what the aftercare plan is. They don't know what they should be doing, how they should approach you. They tend to stand they're standoffish. They don't want to upset a person, and they're really in the dark. And, and as we know, it usually involves ongoing aftercare of a quality aftercare program of some type to help a person sustain their recovery and continue to gain in, in health and wellness. And so, so often those linkages are not made, they're not set up when someone is in residential treatment at a distance that it, it falls through pretty soon after discharge. Now, one way around that is, and at times I am working with the patient's so I'll be on the phone and I'll insist that they schedule an aftercare appointment at a, at a program before the person is discharged. And I'll say, you got to do that because we know it's it's so easy to not follow through, to think that we don't need it. You know, we're I mean, people must be tired of treatment after they've been in these intensive programs right. for so long. I mean, it's probably the last thing that they want to think about, just, you know, being human. But I guess... I mean, I don't know. It's so funny how, like, the anxiety that rises up in me and that my blood pressure goes up points when we start talking about 
like aftercare uh, because in my mind what I hear is again this is based on my experience uh, but it's been repeated over and over again uh, aftercare I have never had like the you did use the adjective quality I have never had quality aftercare all of the aftercare that I've ever gone to was you know you go from inpatient to step down to partial hospitalization down to intensive outpatient to general outpatient and it's really just an extension of what happens in the treatment centers it's essentially 12-step facilitated groups um, and heavily influenced and I mean it was just a gigantic waste of my time to go to these I don't mean that in a, in a like I mean that completely seriously. Looking back, yeah, I was laughing at the, I word, at the wording, Bill. Sorry. Well, no, but I mean yeah, my That's life, a first. Yeah, my life today. Yeah, my life today would be so much better had we invested all those hours into quality, uh, gr- you know, group counseling or couples counseling with my wife, individual counseling with a reputable, trained, right, uh, decent, educated therapist who understands trauma who understands right. uh, vicarious trauma with healthcare professionals uh, all the different complexities that that drove my use to begin with or maybe not drove but increased my my vulnerability and susceptibility to developing a substance use disorder none of the 12-step facilitation stuff well not none of it maybe a very teeny tiny piece if I had a skilled counselor would have helped on some level, but not to the degree had it been if my aftercare plan wasn't just let's check off IOP and make sure Bill goes. But you know what? Bill could really use a real therapist. Uh, right. And, and we don't do Imagine that. Imagine that. A highly skilled, highly trained, experienced therapist who meets you where you're at and helps you make sense of rebuilding your life. That's it, blasphemy. It, can you imagine? Can you imagine yeah. the possibilities? Well, and that's and that's why we need to be measuring outcomes long after people leave treatment, right? We need to be all looking. Right. We need to be looking at that time period, um, not just all right. Thank you very much. We got the cash. You know, good luck. Yeah. You know, here are the meetings in your town. Um, right. It's it's much more than because the quality of the program, you know really is, you know, those outcomes in the first year, two, three years, you know, say a lot about the program you went to, you know, but, but it's your life too, right? And so, and how you manage things and giving you tools and quality therapy, everything you just said, Bill, I mean, it's, um, we're, we're missing the boat. We're looking for the quick fix. Yeah. Well, and everything, everything revolves around substances. Right. It's all about, listen, you just got to stop the drugs. You got to stop using. You need to be absent. You got to yeah, everything revolves around the particular substance you're using, not the underlying reason. So it makes absolutely no sense whatsoever to get people to stop using a substance, but not even address. I mean, not even address, but a lot of times we don't even identify why is it that you use in the first place and then start developing a plan? And I think the two should be in combination with one another. And that's where harm reduction uh, can fit in that, okay, they're probably going to keep using. How do we keep them from not, you know, how do we keep them from dying as they're using? Well, that's their, that's your coping mechanism, right? If that's, if you're using the substance to manage trauma, pain, whatever it is, and you take it away and you don't give somebody anything else, that's not tools, tools, strategies. Well, that goes on all day, every day. Yeah, well, I know it is, but I'm just saying I don't think anybody has ever called out the way that we do addiction treatment and saying what you're doing is cruel and it's it's horrific punishment for people, and we wouldn't do that to anybody else. And it's it constitutes malpractice and probably criminal behavior. 
and it may put the patient at higher risk of not only resumption of use, but also of suicide. Absolutely. I mean, if you think about it, if you can't use the only friend you feel that you've had and your way of coping and getting through the life and, you know, going to the job and dealing with all the BS that we have to deal with every day, if, if your only coping strategy is gone, is that a life worth living if you don't have anything to replace it? Yeah, I mean, I think we've, you know, we've already answered that. And I know, I don't know about Sean, I believe Sean's in the same boat, but I've lived it. I mean, I sat there uh, in early sobriety with a gun in my hand thinking, I, I, I can't do this because I cannot live with the emotions, especially because sometimes in treatment, what happens is, there, you know, people tinker around in your head who are untrained and unskilled, and that should have never been tinkered with. I mean, the last treatment center I was in, it, this is gonna, the last treatment center I was in, what they would do is they had a trauma group that was optional, and if you wanted to go, what they would do is they would sign you up for an initial EMDR session. They would do the first EMDR session, and then say, okay, now when you're discharged in a couple weeks, you need to go find someone to finish the treatment. And the first EMDR session is completely unpacking all this trauma. I mean, how, how is that a good idea? But that's what we do, typically. That's malpractice. Unbelievable. Yeah. 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 And they don't even, it's, you're not even connected with one. It's like, okay, go find one. Just Google it when you get out. And a lot of times they do the, the initial session is in the first week or two of being there. So you've got two to three weeks of still sitting in treatment now with all these, uh, you know, memories that have been unpacked and are now front and center and you're trying to manage those emotions i mean that that's pure torture to do plus your brain is trying to heal as as sean described he was in a fog for at least a month your brain is trying to heal you don't want to mess with a brain that's trying to heal do you sean no no, definitely not no definitely mad scientist stuff Yeah. yeah yeah i read something on twitter my favorite source for <laughs> for accurate and useful You're not information. Alone, Absolutely. If you follow the right people, that's the only way to find out. But it's a, a physician, an addiction board certified addiction specialist physician. He wrote a, a piece in, in one of the article, periodicals. And it was about um, a different way of looking at treatment. And one of his points was, asking the patient what their goals are, asking them what they want, what they see as their best possible outcome, as and, and doing that as part of the treatment before you start putting them into the mold and before you start making all sorts of recommendations. And then if you don't do that, which is basically an individualized assessment, if you don't ask people what they want, how can you possibly help them achieve their goals? And I read this and it was like it was like a blinding light in a good way. It was like, well, yeah, of course. But how is it 2020? How is it the year 2020 and we need to write things like that? Yeah. Well, that, <laughs> that's, 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 a, that's a revolutionary statement in today's healthcare system because, we're, you know, we're, we're better at telling people what to do. Right. That's what our system's designed to do. You do this, right. you do that, you know, and and you'll be fine or you do this and that and you'll be deserving of treatment, whatever it is. We are not we're not asking those questions. Right. It's much easier. We, we, 
it's much for easier. The, for the it's providers. Fast. It's faster. You can tick the boxes yeah. on the EMR and move on. When you say, hey, what do you want? What do you need? What's going to make your life better? That opens up, you know, a it's whole amazing bag of stuff. It's amazing to me that we even have to say these things. It's amazing to me that it's not standard of care. <laughs> I mean, we talk, yeah, we talk about this a lot, but uh, it's just amazing how many uh, quote-unquote revolutionary things come out that look at this amazing thing that we're doing. We're changing everything. And from a patient perspective, I look at it and go, how the hell have we made it for hundreds of years of medicine and you didn't, you, you're just figuring this out? that I actually want to be treated like a human being. We're not, yeah, we're, we're not doing a very good job. I mean, that, I mean, that's the short of it, right? We spent 20% of GDP in this country on healthcare, and the quality is not very good, and the access is not very good, especially right. for the most marginalized people in our society. You right. know, it's, it's virtually non-existent, right? right. And, and that is, that's not acceptable, right? But what does that say about our culture? you know, yeah. our attitudes towards human beings, yeah. right? The, the way I yeah, think yeah. about it is right along with you guys, everybody has a story to tell. And if we stop long enough to listen to our patients, our clients, whatever we want to call them, to listen to people's stories, then that, that will show us the way as supports, as coaches, as providers, as helpers, as guides, that that'll lead us to the answer when we hear people's stories and everybody has one and it's it do we really listen to them do we even ask them about their stories in yeah. general we don't but no, I, I've yeah. never been asked. but that but that's the the amazing thing is patrick you're doing it like you're living yeah. it and you're doing that you know in yes. your work which is which is tremendous you know is really you know it shouldn't be revolutionary, but it is today, you know, yes. and, and I think it's the path forward. I, I think I'm preaching to the choir here. Well, uh, I, I appreciate that, Sean. And that's what I hear from the families that I'm working with when they I become part of the family. And, and it's very touching. It's very humbling. And it's so cool about this this role that I play that they they welcome me into their basically they welcome me into their family and i'm like a trusted family member we we develop these really close relationships a, as a coach with the family and it, it reminds me of uh i came up with this analogy it's like which if you were going if you're shopping for a used car would you just buy a used car based on what the salesman told you? No. You'd bring it to a trusted auto, independent auto mechanic to have the used car looked at and put through the tests and drills and everything so that you don't end up sinking a lot of money into that used car later on. So I think of myself as it's like having a trusted auto mechanic as a member of your family if you need to buy a used car. because. And the trusted is a critical piece because it's so hard to know who to trust. But with a family member who's an auto expert auto mechanic, you're golden. You bring the used car and your loved one will tell you whether it's any good or not. And so that's an analogy. That's how I think of myself. I'm the trusted auto mechanic in the family. Yeah, it's a great way to look at it, uh, I think. 
Yeah, people find it useful. Especially because it's such a, I mean, it's just such an abstract and such a nebulous world. You know, the you, if you have no clue about addiction treatment and you put it into a search engine and the stuff that comes up, I mean, they all quickly seem to look the same. There's no way to tell quality of all these goofy certifications and accreditations that a lot of them don't mean anything. Um, yeah. I mean, it's, it's just such a scam industry. Um, it's It's... Yeah, I mean, you need someone to guide you through that. That yeah, and everybody. That. Yeah, exactly. It never. The difference is if you if you ask a patient who's been in treatment at that facility, you know, what was the family involvement like? What was the equine therapy like? Uh, whatever. That's the only way that you can really hear what's going on. And you guys probably do this as well. When I examine these treatment programs website, as soon as I see the term substance abuse, I stop looking because I know they're using stigmatizing language. So I don't care if they've got, you know, accreditation, if they're licensed, if they report equine therapy and cognitive behavioral and evidence-based. Oh, evidence-based. That's another warning sign. Evidence-based, <laughs> right? Well, and, and equine therapy. As soon as I see that, I'm done. So I was, I'm, I, I need now, ther I have to go through therapy now because I did equine therapy. Hold on. I like the equine therapy. I enjoyed it. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you know, that's, I mean, that's, that's why Sean and I are a good team because I, I roll my eyes and go, that's the most ridiculous thing in the world. And Sean's like, oh no, man, it was cool. And it was a little bit. <laughs> You know, you know what I yeah, really when, when you're terrified of found, horses, though. Yeah, yeah well, <laughs> I'm right there with you, Bill. But I'm but afraid I'm, of dogs. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> I'm I, afraid I of dogs. Darny. Well, there is there are emotional support dogs. But. Well, no, I, I I saw so many equine accidents in the ER at Penn uh, that you know I was terrified that one of the things was going to kick me. I'm like, I already got enough problems. I can't stop doing heroin. I don't need to be kicked by a horse. Yeah, this thing is <laughs> ten times the size of me. So, but, oh, and, yeah. and, and look for the stigmatizing language because yeah. if you look hard enough it might take a few pages to go through but most times you'll find it and then that lets you know they're they're not up with the current research on the correct terminology and that abuse is a legal term to connote causing damage and abuse is done by bad people mm -hmm. and that's when you know to, to just keep looking. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, that just you just knocked out about 95% of the treatment centers that are out there. So it's true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, no, I, mean, I would say that's probably that's probably conservative estimate too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> absolutely. We're, we're not, I, we, we we would never get sponsored. There. I mean, that being said, there are some treatment centers that are trying, you know, trying to to do a good job and trying to, um, you know, get in line with best practices, you know, yeah. but it, it's, but it's, yeah. the problem is it's a complex disease. And like we say over and over, there is no one solution or one path. There's no cookie cutter approach. Um, right. And it's in healthcare, we want algorithms, right? We want, you know, a simple flowchart that guides us down some, you know, clinical path. And yeah. I always, I always say, you know, substance use disorders are some of the most complex and challenging um, diseases out there. Yeah, absolutely. You know, even the idea of it being a disease, you know, is, is, you know, there's a lot of debate around that too. 
you know, is it a learning d- disorder? You know, there's there's a bunch of different. It it's very um, it's challenging and complex, you know, yeah. and it's not easy. But many many treatment centers do a tremendous amount of harm. Um, I think many are trying to do a good job, but uh, but it's it, it's hard wading through. You know pulling the weeds apart and trying to find, especially when you're hurting or a loved one struggling, or if you yourself are struggling to find the the right place, you know, right. and right. I ended up, I think overall in a good place, you know, despite some of the things, you know, my comments, um, <laughs> I, I ended up, I ended, yeah, I ended up in a really good place, but I ended up in a good place because I had a family member who is, you know, has a background in, in psychiatry, psychiatric nursing, who knew some people and I had a referral, right? And they knew yeah. some people that went there and had a good experience. You had the trusted um, auto mechanic in the family, right. Sean. That's exactly the, what I mean. <clears throat> that's what that's what I had. And and most people don't have that. Exactly. You know? and yeah. I was lucky. So um yeah. And and what I, I would agree with you, Sean, recently there's a program in Massachusetts that just started um, offering Suboxone um, initiation in the residential program that up until a couple of years ago, no, nope, never had it, never wanted to have it. So, and I was shocked to hear that. So, yeah, I, I do think that there is some change. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's happening slowly, but I when I heard that, that was um, amazing and I was surprised and I congratulated them now and uh, it also reminds me of another role for a family addiction coach is that oftentimes i'm coaching families on how to try to interface with the treatment center and for example bill with you and trish and the difficulties that you all had if trish had had someone in my kind of role who could advise her as to how to approach the treatment center it might have helped um it, it, she could have gotten some guidance about how to uh, approach this, how to try to get a, a couple's meeting, a family meeting set up, um, try to you know learn about the aftercare kind of thing. So that's also another role that I play that I find. And basically, if if you think if you think it's it's okay to breathe a sigh of relief when your loved one enters a residential program, but the, the hard work has just begun, and so it, it, the families can really benefit from someone who is objective and knowledgeable, like the, the auto mechanic in the family, who can advise them on how to continue to interface with their loved one and with the treatment programs and with any providers after that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, good. I mean, I guess that's probably a good spot to start wrapping up. It's been about... Yeah, we're about like an hour and a half, so I think this was really great. I mean, this is something that, uh, you know, we've never addressed, and I don't think I've never heard anybody else talk about the role of the family. It's usually an excluded role, and for both Sean and I, it's been critical in our recovery and, and in our family's recovery. I mean, I think Sean's probably in the same boat I am, that we don't we don't really identify as a person in recovery. It's say we're a family in recovery, and so it's it's really great, Patrick. The, the work that you're doing up there... Um, that your that your specialty area that you're focusing on the family as a unit recovering instead of just the individual, and I, I think that's the future and the right way to go. Absolutely. I, I mean, there's so much power when you harness it. I mean, when you know, with with healthy families, which most 
families with addiction are totally healthy and loving. And uh, when you can make use of that and, you know, have meetings to break the ice and talk about what it's going to be like when the person comes home again, it just makes so much sense. And, and I mean, I was one more thing is that um, I mean, there's also this idea and, and you describe doing it, Sean, that you continue to learn about the impact on the family over time. And that's so positive. It's so healthy that you're addressing that, that you're dealing with that. Um, and I think a lot of people don't, e even though they may be in a recovery. But it's kind of like, you know, I mean, that's tough stuff to look backwards and to be addressing, you know, hurt feelings or, you know, things that we might have caused uh, another person to feel hurt or betrayed or whatever. I mean, that, that's tough to, stuff to deal with. And so good for you that that you value that and that you're open to that and that you are still exploring that. It sounds like you always will. That's really great stuff. That's really healthy. Yeah, we agree. And so, yeah, and so Patrick, thanks for coming on. We really, uh, we really appreciate your insight and you spending the time with us. And so I guess how can people reach you? How can people hear your podcasts? Patrick at... Let's see. Well, the, probably the simplest way is to go onto my website at familyaddictioncoach.com and they can find my podcast there. There's also a way to reach me, uh, reaching out with a web contact. My phone number contact is on the website as well. So it's familyaddictioncoach.com. Great. All right, well, we'll put links in the, the show notes so that people can get in touch with you. And so, yeah, once again, just thanks so much for coming on. This was a, a boatload of fun to, to chat My with you. My pleasure. My pleasure. And I'm glad that I could contribute. Thank you for listening to Health Professionals in Recovery. Please visit our website at www.healthprosinrecovery.com and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at HPIR Podcast. If you are struggling with substance use disorder and need help, please call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration at 1-800-662-4357. Take it from us, people can and do recover.